Well, if you have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to open up to Psalm chapter 44. Um, if you forgot a Bible, you know, Google it and, and, and find, a, you know, find a good Bible app and open up to Psalm chapter 44. So for the next two weeks, we'll be in Psalm 44 this morning and then Psalm 61 next week. Um, and, and Lord willing, we'll be in Psalm 61 next week. And I, I personally, I love the Psalms. I, I love how the Psalms just demonstrate for us the full range of, of the human experience. You know, some of the Psalms are, are celebration poems. Others are, are psalms of real heart-wrought repentance. We see psalms that are great triumph and others that are filled with deep sadness. You really see the full range of human experience and emotion in the psalms. And so as we study Psalm 44 this morning, we see the psalmist in this moment where he's questioning why. Why would God allow evil to come upon those who, who are trying to follow after him? This is a question that really every believer has to wrestle with. Why would God allow these evil things to come upon us even when we're trying our best to faithfully follow after him? It's, it's abundantly true, and I think we all would acknowledge this, that in this sinful and fallen world that we're in, we're going to come upon great hardship. Some seasons of incredible hardship that last for weeks or months or years or, or decades. And so we ought to ask this question, why does God let this happen? And I think Psalm 44 really helps us to, to sort of express these questions and these concerns back to God in prayer. I, I've found that using the Psalms to guide my own prayers has been such a great benefit for my own walk with Christ. Because instead of trying to make up words and try to wrestle with this myself, I can pray God's word back to him. And so maybe this morning, if you're in one of those seasons where it's really, really hard, let Psalm 44 influence your prayers throughout this week. Let these be words that guide the way that you pray to God and, and, and ask these questions of him. So let me read for us the whole of Psalm 44. This is the word of our Lord. Do you take heed how you listen? To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land. Nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. 
You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All the day long, my, grace, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All of this has come upon us, though we have not forsaken you, and we have not been false to your covenant. O Lord, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Well, friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. I want to start off by looking just at the, the heading at the top of the psalm, those all capital letters that you might see in your Bible, where it says, to the choir master. That title reminds us this psalm is meant to be sung by God's people. It would have been originally sung by the whole of the congregation in God's temple as they're gathered together. But if you look kind of overview of the psalm, you'll notice that the pronouns tend to change between first person singular to first person plural. And what, what a lot of commentators think is happening here is that as all the nation is gathered together and they sing this song, there's some parts that everybody's singing and there's some parts that the king of Israel himself is singing in front of the whole people. And so as we go through the text, I want you to just have that picture in your mind of God's people in the temple and the king kind of standing up near the front and he's saying some things and then everybody else re responds with other parts of the psalm together. Now, as we walk through the text this morning, I want to use just three simple headings, past, present, and future. So past, present, and future. So let's look at what the psalmist says about the past. Look back at verses one and two. Oh God, we have heard with our ears our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. And so as the people are singing, they're looking back at what they've been told about God's faithfulness in previous generations. How God was abundantly faithful throughout all of the Old Testament history to provide and protect his people. In story after story, in battle after battle, God was faithful. And I think the psalmist is calling the people to remember specifically the moments in history where God's people were entering into the promised land. After their 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and then their 40 years in the desert, and then they're finally entering the promised land, and in battle after battle, the Lord gave them victory. 
And so they're remembering this. This is what he says in verse 3. He says that not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So they're giving God all the credit. Although the Israeli armies were the ones carrying the swords and firing the bows and arrows, God gets the credit. You can think here of the, the great uh, doctrine from the Protestant Reformation of soli deo gloria, right? meaning for the glory of God alone. As they're singing this song, they're remembering that God's faithfulness in these past battles, everything that happened, God is the one who gets the credit. He deserves the praise alone. Now, I want you to notice kind of what's really happening as the people are singing this song. The congregation is, is remembering God's faithfulness to the past generations. And that congregation would include older people and younger people. Right? By God's design, that's what, is, that's what the church is supposed to look like. You know, older generations passing along the stories of God's faithfulness to the younger people. And so I think there's a, a point of application here for those of you who are younger. So children, teenagers, anybody else who still thinks of themselves as young, I want to encourage y'all to look around this room and see some of the people who are older than you. Get to know them as individuals made in the image of God and learn their stories. Ask them about God's faithfulness to them over the course of their life. And young people, when you do that, what happens is when you start facing similar trials and temptations, you can remember, oh wait, I've heard a man in our church who went through the same thing when he was 20 years old. And God was faithful to him, God will be faithful to me now. Okay, but similar application for those of you who might think of yourselves as a little bit more uh, seasoned. I, I had a friend call these people the, the, the gray-haired wisdom warriors. Um, you know, she, for you, as you reflect on God's faithfulness in, in your past, share those stories with other people. Be diligent to talk about how God has worked in your own life and how you've seen his faithfulness endure over your years. Share those stories. We need to hear them. So back to Psalm 44, after retelling the works of God through the generations past, we get a brief prayer in verse 4. It says, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. So notice the shift in pronouns. It's likely this is one of those moments where the king is speaking this. If that's the case, then consider the great humility required for the king of a country to pray what he just prayed. Although the speaker of this verse is the king of a great nation, he confesses that there's a greater king. That takes a lot of humility. I think we ought to be praying for that kind of humility to enter the hearts of the leaders of our nation at every level of government, that they would recognize that there's a king that's higher and greater than them. We see this humility, especially in verses 6 and 7. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. So whoever this particular king of Israel is, he's exemplifying real, real humility. 
They've had this previous military success in their own generation, but he's giving all of the glory and all of the credit to the Lord. Right? Not in my own bow and arrow, not in my own sword, but he gives the credit to the Lord. It's him who has saved them from their enemies. And I think there's some questions we need to ask ourselves as we think through this. When things go well in your life, who gets the credit? When things are going really well, who are you giving the credit to in your mind and in your heart? You know, students at every level, college and on down in grad school, wherever you might be, when you do really well on an assignment, are you giving that credit to yourself and saying, ha ha, I did great on that test, or that was the best paper I ever submitted? Or do you recognize that it's the Lord who gave you the brain that you have and that he gets the glory for the work that you've done? Okay, those of you who are parents, when you have those moments where your kids just do something incredible, that you're so proud of them, do you look at that and think, oh, I'm a good parent today. I finally did it. Don't worry about yesterday. Today was a good day. I was a good parent today. Or do you recognize that it's the Lord who's working in your child's heart? For those of us who work, when things go really well at work, do you aim to get all the credit for yourself, or are you diligent to give the credit to the Lord? For he's the one who's blessed your efforts. For all of us, where are we putting our trust? In our own tools, and our own savvy, and our own ability to just kind of grit our teeth and, and force ourselves forward? Or are we willing to say, God, it's by your strength that I can do anything at all? Now, this first section, looking back at the past, it concludes with verse 8. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. Now, that Hebrew word Selah, um, every commentator has a different idea about what that word means. I grew up as a drummer, and so I think that means insert drum solo here. Probably not the case. But you, you read this, and this verse seems like the end of a great triumphal victory hymn, doesn't it? God, we've boasted continually. We're giving great, great thanks to your name. Selah, close the book. You know, great hymn of victory and praise. But this is only the first third of the psalm. And in fact, what we see in the, in the rest of it is this is not a psalm of great victory, but rather a psalm of lament. This is a psalm of, of, of deep sadness and crying out to the Lord for help. So we've looked at the past. Now let's move to our second heading, the present. This is verses 9 through 22, and what we see here is that their present situation is terrible. They're not experiencing great victory like the first eight verses would lead us to think, but rather this psalm is written from a place of gut-wrenching sadness. I want to read some of the verses again just to help you feel the emotion of where these people are singing this from. How this is coming out from their heart as deep sadness. Let me read verses 9 and following. But you, speaking to the Lord, you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. 
You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All the day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and avenger. This is great sadness that we're seeing here. No longer is God giving the Israelite armies success after success. Instead, they find themselves defeated and struck down in battles. Despite God's previous faithfulness, their, their present experience is making them think that God has abandoned them. And so they ask themselves, why? Why is the Lord letting these things happen to me? Why is the Lord letting our army, armies being overtaken by these enemies? And so the Israelites, as, as a congregation, start doing what I think many of us should do in this situation. When we face great failure and loss and hardship, we start to brainstorm wondering, okay, what have I done to bring this upon myself? And so the next few verses, they're kind of doing some introspection, doing some soul searching, wondering, okay, is this God's holy and righteous discipline for me in this life? There are other psalms where we see that to be the case. In Psalm 38, David has sinned and he's experiencing the earthly discipline from God. He can do that. And so they start asking these questions. You can look at verse 17. All of this has come upon us, although we have not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. So they conclude, you know, Lord, we've done some soul searching. We've not broken our end of the covenant. Their end of these covenant requirements, which I think are best summarized in, in the Ten Commandments. So you can imagine maybe that they pause the hymn halfway through and everybody turns to Exodus chapter 20 and they read through the, the, the Ten Commandments and conclude, we've been faithful to uphold our end of the covenant. So Lord, why is this happening? Then verses 18 through 19, our hearts haven't turned back and yet you've broken us in the place of the jackals. They're essentially saying, God, our, our hearts have been loyal to you. We've followed your commandments, we've been obedient to your will, and yet we're being soundly defeated. And then they start to wonder, okay, maybe, maybe somehow we started to worship a god from a different country. That's what they ask in verse 20 and 21. You know, if we'd forgotten the name of our god and spread out our hands to a foreign god, would not God discover this? And he would have. If they had been guilty of worshiping some false god, the spirit would have pricked their consciences. God would have seen the rebellion in their hearts and, and, and convicted them of that sin. But the people, after discerning themselves for a while, they conclude that, at least in this moment, they're still trusting in the Lord. And so they're still left wondering, why? Why would God allow these things to happen? You can hear just the deep agony in their voices, can't you? I mean, look, look especially at the heartbreaking tone in verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Have you been in a place like that before? 
Perhaps in the course of your life, you've experienced just unthinkable tragedy and sorrow, similar to what the Israelites are facing in this moment. Perhaps you've asked the Lord these same questions yourself. Perhaps, you know, Lord willing, maybe nobody in this room is going through that. Maybe nobody right now is in a place of great trial, but I, I know that's not true. I know there are certainly some of us who are facing just incredible hardship, and so we're left asking why. And the really hard part is that this psalm doesn't give us a firm and clear answer. We don't get some brilliant insight into why God is allowing the Israelites to experience such downfall in their military conquests. Instead, we see God's people just left questioning God saying, where are you? They know that he's still their God, and they recognize that God is allowing these things to happen, but they're still in deep, heart-wrought pain. And so they turn to the Lord in prayer and ask him to show up in the future. Look at verses 23 and 24. Look at this prayer that they pray. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? I think we see echoes of that kind of prayer in the New Testament. I think specifically of the story when Jesus and his disciples are out on the boat in the Sea of Galilee and this great storm comes upon them. And what's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap in the back of the boat. You see the story in Luke chapter 8 where you know, the, the, the wind and the waves and, and the lightning and the thunder are coming upon them. And so the disciples go to Jesus and they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased, and there was calm. And then Jesus said to his disciples, where is your faith? You can see this rebuke that he gives the disciples, saying, where is your faith? You know, the, the, the truth is the disciples had nothing to fear. The very Son of God who was able to control the wind and the waves was their traveling partner. But in the midst of their crisis, they, they felt, their experience was, that they've been abandoned. That they're in grave danger, and so they, they woke up the Lord and begged him to do something. I think for both the disciples in the boat and for the Israelites in Psalm 44, the danger seemed so imminent that they knew God was their only hope for rescue. And yet what both groups seemingly forgot is a truth that we all need to remember. A truth that's repeated throughout Scripture, but I think is most clearly highlighted in Psalm 121, verse 4, which says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That God doesn't sleep like you and I do. In fact, he never rests from his providential protection and care for his children. Without fail, God is always watching over you. Without fail, he is always sovereignly governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. 
He doesn't sleep. And yet, from the perspective of the congregation in Psalm 44, it sure seems like God is taking a nap. It sure seems like God is resting somewhere and is neglected to notice the danger that they're in. But they needed to remember, and I think we need to remember as well, that God never slumbers nor sleeps. He always watches over his people. And this prayer continues in in, in verse 25. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground, and then they pray, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We get the picture of the whole congregation just crying out in desperation for the Lord to do something. You can picture them, you know, bowed down in the most vulnerable position possible, faces to the ground, begging for God to rise up. Now I want to focus on that final sentence. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This final plea for God to rescue them, it's rooted in God's steadfast love, his covenant love. The people are are again calling to mind these covenant promises that the Lord has made to them generation after generation after generation. That the Lord would never leave them nor forsake them. That the Lord had promised them, I will be your God and you will be my people. They knew they could trust in God. And so for, for the moment, it seemed like God had abandoned them but they were still reminding themselves and preaching to themselves God's covenant faithful love and that his promises would never fail. He would never betray his covenant promises. At some point in the future, God would finally come to their aid. But it may not happen in their ideal timing. God's answer to that prayer may not look the way that they wanted it to look but still they trusted in God to act. They trusted that God would somehow make a way for their redemption. But they just didn't see it yet. They didn't see the way, they didn't see how it was possible. And so the psalm ends without a firm answer to the questions the people have raised. They've been crying out, why are you letting this come upon us? Why is this evil here? Why are you sleeping, God? But they're left without an answer. Except there is one glimmer of hope right in the heart of the psalm. There's one glimmer of hope that actually points us forward to the New Testament. Look back at verse 22. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This seems like another cry of lament, and yet, look at the first four words. Yet for your sake. In those four words, we get just a glimmer of hope. That it was for God's sake that the people experienced this great tragedy. How? How is that possible? How is it that we experience great tragedy for God's sake? Well, the Apostle Paul takes that verse and he quotes it right in the middle 
of one of the most glorious chapters in all of the Bible. In Romans chapter 8, let's turn there now. In Romans chapter 8, Paul takes Psalm 44 and quotes it for us. Now, I think in a lot of ways, Paul is actually referring to the whole chapter. He just pulls out this one verse for us to see that as followers of Christ, even when we're suffering, even when we're going through immense hardship, we can trust that it's happening for God's sake and for his glory. Look at what Paul writes in verses 35 through 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he quotes from Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul's reminding us that as followers of Christ, we will, from time to time, find ourselves in situations like the Israelites of Psalm 44. We'll find ourselves in times of incredible tribulation, remarkable distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Those things will come our way, even as we faithfully aim to follow after Jesus. Jesus himself warns us in John 16 that in this world you will have trouble. And yet Paul says, and the psalmist says, that these trials are for Christ's sake. They are for his glory, and ultimately in only ways that God can understand, they are for our good. We may not get to understand the fullness of that reality in this life, but it's true nonetheless that our persecutions, our trials, our dangers, anything that we face is ultimately for the sake of God's name. And then Paul says that even when it looks like God's people are losing the battle, we can rest in the comforting fact that through Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can overcome us. Look what he writes in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So despite the tribulations and distresses and persecutions that we face, there is nothing that can overcome us. Through our union with Christ, we can be sure that one day, when Christ returns on the final last day, that Jesus Christ will win. And he will reign triumphant forevermore. He will do this. In a lot of ways, he's already begun to win the battle. You think of the victory on the cross, defeating sin, defeating death. That prayer from Psalm 44, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love, Christ has redeemed us because of his work on the cross. And then one day when he returns, he will deal the final death blow to Satan, to sin, to temptation, to famine, to war, to distress, to persecution. All of it will be gone forever. And for the Christian, for those who are in Christ, we will be more than conquerors with him. 
We will get to enjoy the fullness of the presence of God with us for all eternity. And because that reality is true, because that reality of our future home in the new heavens and the earth, because that is true, then we get to rest in those promises in this life. That nothing can separate us from God's love. Even when we face trials like the congregation of Psalm 44, even when we face tribulation and distress and nakedness and danger and sword, even still, we get to suffer for God's sake. As the Apostle Peter put it, we get to rejoice in our sufferings. We get to rejoice in the fact that we're doing it for God's sake and for his glory and will endure it by God's strength. We'll endure it with the knowledge of what Paul says at the end of verse 37 and following. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now cling to this promise today. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.